Please uh, do take a seat. It would be really helpful if you uh, can have your Bibles open to Jude. We'll be referring to uh, this passage that uh, Ruth read for us earlier uh, extensively throughout this uh, um, time that we have, half an hour or so. So, um, as you know, we are in the middle of a three-part sermon series from this letter. You may be quite uh, shocked, I think, by the content of this passage uh, that was read earlier, uh, especially if you missed uh, last week's sermon. You know, what on earth is uh, Jude talking about? Um, Lots of references to angels, dreams, Balaam, Korah, um, and Enoch. Who is he? Um, And even worse, all these uh, are delivered in rapid succession of judgments. You know, is this something that, uh, that you really want to hear? Uh, uh, you know, it feels like a, like a bad day at work that just uh, goes from bad to worse. And on your way home, bam, you meet roadworks. I mean, I understand if you, if you don't want to get stuck behind roadworks, you know, on a Sunday, Father's Day and things. Um, my family would be the first to, to say that um, I'm the worst at roadworks because I get road rage uh, with myself. Um, I, I can't blame the workers because, you know, they're doing a good job in, uh, in the difficult conditions. I can't blame the burst water pipes because, well, I mean, that's just crazy. Um, so I just kind of blame myself. I kind of... Um, feel mad with myself for being unlucky and not being in control of um, the situation I'm in. Well, for the churches that Jude was writing to, well, they were losing control over the authentic message of the Christian gospel, that faith in verse 3 that was once for all entrusted to the saints. See, verse 4 tells us that certain people have slipped in among them, the false teachers who, through their distorted teaching and the public display of their immoral living, were throwing the churches into chaos. They're like viruses that invade healthy body organs and cause decay. They're like unwelcome parasites that um, uh, invade body organs uh, they, and yet remain unharmed. And despite all that, they walked free. Imagine that. How can that be just? But um, you know, how can it be just if, um, if I set fire on Hampstead Heath and yet I walk free? But this is what these false teachers are doing. They change God's amazing grace into something dirty and flushes it down the toilet and still get away with it. Well, you know, people may not think this is a big deal. You know, after all, uh, we live in a tolerant society. We are part of a diverse church. Ought we not accept different versions of the gospel? Be nice to one another? Uh, if, um, if I prefer a permissive lifestyle as a Christian, well, why is that to you? Dotovsky, uh, the 19th century um, novelist, Russian novelists long ago thought that the high cost for rejecting God 
was the destruction of morality. He said, if God does not exist, then everything is permissible. And so in secular Britain, tolerance is the new truth. Justice is just is. This idea is fed to us daily through uh, the news, through social media, schools, workplaces, universities, and unfortunately, church pulpits up and down the country. Everything is acceptable, with one exception. Jesus as Lord and Sovereign. Now, permissive authorities within the umbrella of the Christian church, of course, influence people's values and behaviors. You know, faithful Christians and our our children are being carried away by the attractiveness of their teaching. They're seen as more progressive, aren't they? Uh, They're in tune. They sell iPhone X and not Nokia bricks. But the biblical God does not play these kind of progressive games like we do. You know, the only progress that the Bible knows of is the progress in holiness, in becoming more and more Christ-like. That's why Jude's call to contend for the faith remains as relevant as ever uh, for us today as it was in his day. So this is what the rest of this uh, letter is going to address. He reminds us Christians that Jesus is still the Sovereign and Lord, who is in total control today. He is our captain, the commander-in-chief, leading us in battle. And he promises his troops safe return, uh, that he will keep us secure, as in, and in, as in verse 1 that Jack um, showed us earlier. You know, we've been called, loved by God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. So not only security, but he also promises us that justice will be done. So Jesus is that perfect judge who judges with perfect justice. He keeps the righteous and destroys the ungodly. Now this is the key, friends. This is the key to understanding uh, the rest of this passage. So let's start with verse 5. Verse 5 begins with, I want to remind you, I want you to to wake up to the fact that Jesus, the perfect judge, will not let the guilty walk away. So what Jude does here is the equivalent of giving churches booster injections to awaken the body's defense against invading viruses. Just like I needed a tetanus booster several years ago when I fell off my bike. Uh, That's to wake up my immunity to uh, tetanus. So in a similar way, Jude is waking up the church's consciousness here, their defense system that had gone to sleep. You know, after all, we all need to wake up before we can fight. So you need to know with certainty that Jesus is your commander-in-chief, that you need to know with certainty that uh, Jesus is the supreme judge who sits over the court of justice. So like Jude himself, uh, we as Christians tend to be far more eager, isn't it, to talk about the salvation that we share than the judgment of the Holy God. We are far more eager, like John the Baptist, to point to Jesus and say, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But we are slow to remember God's justice. 
in our reluctance to be judgmental, we sacrifice justice altogether. So just remind you, this is timely, is it not? His booster injections, life-giving. You're going to get three injections this morning, I'm sorry. Uh, first injection, first booster, uh, reminds us that, um, that Jesus had shown, Jesus had showed his previous judgments against the ungodly. And that you can see in verses 5 to 7. So what Jude is doing here is that he took us back at Captain Jesus' past victories in the battlefields, as it were. He took us back to consider Jesus' past court rulings as a judge. And it's clear from the three case studies presented that this judge always rules against the ungodly. So verse 5 tells the story of Israel, whom the Lord, uh, or if you look at the footnote there, some early manuscripts, and in fact the ESV says, Jesus, so whom Jesus rescued from Egypt under Moses' leadership, but who later perished in the wilderness because of their stubborn unbelief, their hard-heartedness, despite all the evidence of God's presence with them. What about verse 6? Verse 6 tells the story of rebellious angels from Genesis 6, verse 1 to 4. It's it's a mysterious story, mysterious sons of God, really, who committed sexual sins with women. You know, for for, for these sins, Christ, for these sort of sexual sins that these angels committed, Christ had kept them uh, with eternal chains for the day of judgment. What about verse 7? tells the well-known story of destruction of sexually immoral and perverted Sodom and Gomorrah that the Lord destroyed with fire. And it served as a perpetual example for us of those who will suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Now, Christ's past judgments show us some common features here. Well, first, it's clearly holistic in its scope. You notice that both the natural and the supernatural worlds were involved. The angels were not spared just because uh, they were heavenly beings. Jesus is sovereign and judge over the whole of the created order. Secondly, it's impartial in its quality. Uh, The Israelites who sin, although they belong to the umbrella of God's people, they were destroyed in the same way as the pagan inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah were. So Jesus is here showing him as a just judge who exercises perfect justice. And thirdly, it's terrifying in its outcome. You see destruction in verse 5, eternal change in verse 6, eternal fire in verse 7. I mean, one thing for sure, there is no escape. Just Don't be on the wrong side of this judge. And fourthly, the judgment consists of the now and the not yet. If you notice, although these rebellious angels in verse 6, they were bound in chains, their punishment is not yet complete. They're still waiting for the final day of judgment, as we shall see later. And last, and perhaps the most obvious, Christ's judgment 
is always against rebellious sinners. And in Jude, these are ultimately the false teachers whose pattern of sinfulness sets them apart for disruption. But you may ask, if if this is the case, why aren't we seeing judgments against the ungodly sinners today? You know, at a scale that we had seen in the past. You know, where's the the fire and the burning sulfur uh, that consumed Sodom? It certainly appears that the wicked today does walk free. The false teachers live prosperously and occupy all sorts of positions of power. So where is the God of justice? Well, here's second booster, second injection uh, from Jude. He reminds us that the lack of grand-scale destruction does not mean absence of judgment. Jesus is still the judge, and he reserves the ungodly for eternal destruction. And you can see that from verses 8 to 13. But before Jude elaborates on this further, he looks, he takes us to the pattern of sinfulness that is characteristic of these false teachers. How do we recognize them in the first place? You see, we cannot contend against an unknown enemy. If the church is to be safe, it needs to know the enemy in their midst, who eats and drinks with them, who looks uh, just like them, and even shares Holy Communion with them. And that's what the last feasts of, of verse 12 is about. So friends, we'll use, uh, first of all, let, let's use verse 8, shall we, as, as, a, as our landmark. So in the very same way, these dreamers pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and slander celestial beings. Well, first, this first section there, these dreamers pollute their own bodies. So we can identify uh, these false teachers from what they teach the churches. So both in what they say and in how they live. So these false teachers in Jude had clearly had got supernatural claims, haven't they? And they're derived from their dreams, dreams that become the source of their revelation. They supplement or perhaps replace scriptures as their authority. And their dreams tell them it's okay to pollute your own bodies. But of course, they left out that vital truth that God has saved them to be holy, as I am holy, says the Lord. And in Matthew 6, that we heard a few weeks ago, to be perfect, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. These sexual sins had caused uh, the angels to rebel in, in, against God in verse 6, And, of course, it has caused the destruction of Sodom in verse 7. So their behaviors, the way they live, they are more instinctive, like animals, as opposed to self-controlled. Their dreams gave them license for sexual immorality as they follow their own evil desires. So we need to beware of supernatural claims, supernatural claims that are not consistent with biblical revelation. While verse 8 continues to say that they reject authority. 
And friends, this is characteristic, isn't it? Characteristic of human pride. It's central to all ungodliness, the rebellious nature of man. These false teachers, they, they would not have risen out of thin air. But, um, you know, most likely they would have been warned by other leaders, wouldn't they? Attempts would have been made to correct their error. But they won't listen. They're their own authority. They're defiant, they're stubborn and rebellious. And we see this rebellious hearts way back from, again, if you can look at verse 4. They deny Jesus Christ, the only sovereign and Lord. Verses 5 to 7, we've just seen. Verse 9, for example, verse 9 shows this rebellious sin in the devil himself. It is of the devil. It's a complex verse, friends, but, uh, but in essence, it shows up the devil's contempt of the Lord's authority. Moving on to verse 11, um, they, it, it says there that they've traveled the same road as Cain did in Genesis chapter 4. They've traveled that same road. It's the same old road, the same old sin. And they have swallowed whole into Balaam's error. Uh, Balaam, as we heard earlier from Numbers, 20, Numbers 22, who cursed God's people in exchange for money. And verse 11 says that they've been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. And who is Korah? Well, Korah was, was a priestly Levite that you can read in number 16 if you want to, uh, who rejected the God-given authority of Moses and Aaron, the chief priest. Well, next, we can identify these rebellious characteristics through the way they speak and behave. So, if you look at verse 12, Verse 12 says that they are blemishes, or more accurately, they are hidden rocks. They are hidden reefs in shallow water that uh, cause ships to sing because they can't see those rocks. They have no shame, therefore, in tripping others up. They are shepherds who feed themselves. So they cannot be trusted, can they, as, as, as leaders because they fill their own stomachs and pockets. They are clouds without rain. What does that mean? Well, giving empty promises, isn't it? And they are bad trees. They are bad trees that yield no fruit, although they look like trees, just like everyone else. But their roots are rotten. They are twice dead. And verse 16 right at the bottom of the page there, says that they are grumblers, boastful, fault-finders. These are troublemakers who thrive on division and conflict. They use others and flatter them for their own gain. So friends, beware. Beware. Don't get sucked in by their outward charm. And thirdly, in verse 8, 
it continues to say that they slander celestial beings. Well, what it is is that these false teachers were abusive to angels. Those heavenly beings that uh, we perhaps know little of. But verse 14 calls them holy ones. They're holy ones as they accompany the Lord's return. Verse 10 says that these false teachers speak abusively against whatever they do not understand. Friends, now surely this is foolish. Isn't it? This is foolish, uh, foolish behavior. You know, they claim to be wise and super spiritual with their dreams and their revelation, but in reality, through their abusive behavior towards angels, something they don't understand, they display their foolishness. And verse 11 also shows their foolishness, isn't it? They rush for profit. They rush. They rush for profit into Balaam's error. So what they've done is that they sell their souls for eternal destruction in exchange for some silver coins. They should have listened, shouldn't they, to Lady Wisdom from Proverbs 9. Let all who are simple come in here. Leave your simple ways and you will live. Walk in the way of understanding. See, these old sins are old. They are recycled over and over again in each generation. These false teachers embody and exemplify them. And they just can't get away from the judgment of a holy God. So, let's not follow. Don't don't follow the pattern of sinful living, their, their rebelliousness, permissive, licentious behavior, foolish judgments. Yeah, they may prosper for a while. They may live to a ripe old age in comfort. But here's the sting in the tail. Here's the sting in the tail. They're cursed. Verse 11 says, and Jude is quite um, clear on this, woe to them. That's a pronouncement of curse. They're cursed. They're marked for future destruction. They're reserved for punishment of eternal fire. The Greek word for reserve there is, is to guard carefully, to preserve it. So verse 13 says that they're wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. So in other words, they're their destruction is absolutely certain because they are securely guarded. They are securely guarded. Not for Jesus Christ, like in verse 1, it's the same Greek word. They are not kept for Jesus Christ, but they are securely guarded for eternal destruction. So their destruction, friends, is as certain as the salvation of those who are in Christ. It's just the flip side of the same coin of certainty. So the ungodly will certainly suffer the punishment of eternal fire, eternal darkness, that second death where there won't be, there won't be any palliative care, isn't it? There won't be any Macmillan nurses to ensure a good death. The second death 
will be an absolute horror. Absolute horror. So certain is Jude about the, the future disruption of the ungodly that he says in verse 11, if you cast your eye on verse 11, that they have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. They have been. It's not grammatical error. That's deliberate. Because the destruction of the ungodly is as good as done. It's done. Friends, you know, no, no wonder as, as Christians, uh, we, we far more prefer to talk about grace and salvation. And rightly so, isn't it? Because the Bible is full of examples of God's mercy to sinners who turn to him. The famous verse from John's Gospel, of course, says it all, isn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Well, our world today, you know, would happily accept this concept of God's love. Whether they accept and believe its truth is another matter. Because for our society, for our world, love is inclusive. But judgment, eternal punishment, uh, Jesus Christ who exercises perfect justice, the judge, well, that's judgmental. And that's something, that's not something that we want to hear or we like to hear. But it does not mean, of course, that people don't believe in, in justice or demand justice uh, from one another. We demand that um, uh, we are fairly treated. We demand that we get compensated for the wrongs that had been done to us. It's the playground rules or fair play. People all want justice, but only one, only not the perfect justice of a holy God. But for churches, friends, that are being attacked and internally eaten up by these false teachers, like parasites to a healthy body, God's judgment cannot come any sooner. How long? How long, O oh Lord? You know, how long must we wait in the courtroom before the judge finally enters through the door or stand in the presence of the judge? Sometimes you wait for so long that you wonder whether the judge is coming. Maybe he's late. Maybe he's cancelled his appointment. Maybe justice will never be done. As Professor John Lennox, the professor of maths in Oxford, writes, if there is no final judgment, then there is no such thing as justice. And so here's Jude's third and final booster uh, for his churches. Jesus will come to execute his final judgment. And that's in verses 14 and 15. Verse 14 says, See, see, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones. And the point is Jesus will come. We are not told when, but we are promised that Jesus is coming soon. 
Well, this is consistent with all of uh, Scripture, of course, in the rest of the Bible. But you may be surprised by, uh, by Enoch, uh, this seventh from Adam who prophesied about these false teachers. Well, this prophecy came not from the Bible. It came from the book of one Enoch, which is an intertestamental book. Well, it's important to remember that uh, Jude obviously wrote an audience, an audience where one Enoch, uh, this book, would probably have been relevant. Just like Paul, who quoted uh, Greek poets when he was in Athens, isn't it? And he said to the Athenians, as some of your own poets have said, uh, we are his offspring. So the fact that Jude quoted a prophecy from one Enoch does not mean that the whole of one Enoch is inspired word of God. Just like, you know, we won't consider Greek poems and Greek poetry as inspired word of God. So what's important here is the promise that the judge will come. The judge will come. He will enter the courtroom and he is coming to judge everyone to convict the ungodly of all that they had ever said and done. If this is God's world, then this is his, his justice. Justice is his justice. He is the standard where our ethics, our behavior, our thoughts, our words, our actions will ultimately be judged by. Yeah, people struggle with this, isn't it? People struggle to cope with a punishing God. Because punish is associated with our minds, with anger, revengeful, lashing out, delighting in the blood of human flesh. A monster God. Well, I agree. <laughs> if, it's, if this is true, it's very dangerous indeed. Because God would be a vile monster. But thankfully, friends, such a God is a God of our imagination. It's a God of movies. Not the biblical God who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. So Jesus is slow in his coming, not because he does not care about suffering and injustice, but as um, Peter says in 2 Peter 3, that he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So the truth is, salvation of the godly can only be fully realized when the ungodly are judged. For Jesus, the judge makes a distinction. He makes a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Because if, if he does not, then he does not care about the suffering of the righteous, does he? Then he does not care about justice. And if he does not care about justice, then he is not just. And therefore, he is not worthy of our worship. Well, friends, let's uh, wrap this up, perhaps with three applications. First, be assured, be assured. 
Jesus is in control, despite the chaos of church life. Yes, despite the sin that so easily entangles, even among our teachers, our leaders, despite the devil's lies and the constant attempt to change the story of salvation, even today. Jesus is still in the driver's seat, and he does not get road rage. He is the judge who exercises perfect justice, and he promises that he is coming back. Justice, friends, justice will finally be done. Well, secondly, be on your guard. Be on your guard. Because false teaching is just like viruses that infect healthy bodies. And that's just the fact of life. But don't follow them to destruction. They are cursed and reserved for eternal destruction. So beware of the rotten trees among you, because by their fruit you will recognize them. Don't shelter under those trees or or climb and and build your treehouse on them because those trees will be cut down and you'll be gone with it. And lastly, friends, be amazed. Be amazed. Be amazed once more. And I think as I was preparing this uh, uh, sermon, that's one thing I, I felt. I was amazed. Because the horror of Jesus' judgment against ungodly sinners is just clearly laid out by Jude. That is why the gospel is so amazing. That is why those who who change God's grace into something dirty deserves his eternal judgment. Because, see, the gospel says that at the cross, Jesus, the judge that we've been hearing about, is also Jesus, the Redeemer. Isn't that amazing? The judge at the front of the courtroom who gives the guilty verdict to ungodly sinners, he leaves his chair and he hands himself over to take on the punishment that the guilty deserves. Well, this is amazing grace. This is amazing grace. And friends, this is indeed the historic Christian faith that is worth contending for. Something that we must contend for. It's the good news that's worth proclaiming in every generation. Let's, uh, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your amazing love for us, your amazing grace, for you took on our sin, you took on the punishment that we deserve, that we may be free. Lord Jesus, we pray that we might indeed be more and more amazed by your grace every day. In Jesus' name, amen.